somewhere between sleeping and waking. On our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment when we have one foot in the waking world and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that spin against each other like gears, an attentive traveller will see a narrow door only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, a tumbling cascade of imagination and reality, a fault line in the tectonic crust of consciousness where volcanoes erupt the hot pumice of images and the languid ooze of narrative. Welcome to Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a fortnightly podcast of fairy tales for all ages from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by your host Seymour Jacklin. Visit bordersofsleep.com to find out more. So, if you're ready to travel with me, then I shall begin. One Stormy Night by Seymour Jacklin Once upon a time, a little boy woke up in the middle of the night. There's nothing remarkable about that, perhaps, but this little boy woke up very suddenly from a horrible dream where there was something dark rushing towards him like a big, ragged, black cloak, strangely animated and utterly intent on smothering him. He broke the surface of sleep like one who's nearly drowned and lay gasping on his sheets, frightened by the rasping sound of his own breath and finding no comfort in the darkness in front of his staring open eyes. He must have cried out because the light went on very suddenly and there was his mother in the doorway looking down at him and his father just behind her. Are you all right, Paul? I had a bad dream, he sobbed. As his mother held him, he gave himself up to shivers of relief, feeling himself become a little calmer with every breath. Dad plumped the pillow and smoothed the sheets and went to fetch a glass of water for him. Everything seemed normal and safe, as quickly as it had been frightening and unfamiliar moments earlier. Sensing her son's body relaxing in her arms, Mum laid him back down on his pillow, which was pleasantly cool and stroked his hair. It was only a dream, darling, she said. Try to get back to sleep. She kissed his forehead and moved over so Dad could sit on the side of the bed too. I might not be able to sleep, said Paul. Maybe I can help with that, said Dad. Close your eyes and watch carefully and see what you can see, he said. Paul closed his eyes. What do you see? Dad asked. Paul couldn't see very much at first, but then he thought that there were a couple of red shapes, perhaps, on the back of his eyelids. I can see two red things, he said. What are they? Two red cliffs, with a gap in between like a passageway. Paul's imagination had taken over now. Do you want to go down there? Dad had asked. No, said Paul, but there's something coming out of it. What is it? A sheep. It's a funny sheep, it's all by itself. What is it doing? Just looking around, trying to decide which way to go. Okay, if you follow the sheep, it will take you to sleep, said his father. But if you want to wait and see what else comes out of the passage, then you can do that too. Whatever you choose to follow will take you wherever you need to go, but... If you see a very big horse with seawater in its mane, don't ride it. 
because you might never come back. So Paul waited in front of the cliffs until a tiger came out. Its stripes were orange and red like the cliffs. Paul thought it might be looking for the sheep but it went the other way and he followed it and fell into a deep sleep. Ten years later this boy was awakened again. Again he woke up very suddenly. The darkness around his bed was so complete that he could only use his senses of touch and hearing to orientate himself. The mattress was underneath him all right, but his bed may as well have been cartwheeling through the blackness of space for all his body could tell him about which way up he was. Directly above him was the tearing sound of a strong wind, roaring, whining and worrying at the roof over his head. It must have been the noise of the storm that had woken him up. He was in his bedroom, at home, and he must have been asleep for a couple of hours. He could feel the expansion of his pupils as he tried to peer into the dark, as if his eyes were trying to make themselves as big as possible to catch any stray light that might have found its way into the room. As he lay on his back, staring about him, he was slowly able to discern the outline of the window. Storms were not uncommon for late October, but this one seemed to be shaking the very brickwork. He tried to block out the noise and closed his eyes to get back to sleep. Every time he closed his eyes he felt a little dizzy with the sensation that the house had been pushed over and was tumbling downhill like a die. It wasn't going to be easy to get back to sleep. The wind was working on his imagination. For the last ten years, whenever he'd needed to get to sleep, Paul would close his eyes and wait by those cliffs. He usually followed the tiger if it came out. It was like an old friend, but sometimes he followed a whole flock of sheep. Once he followed an elephant, and not a few times a tiny little bird that hopped along the ground and chirruped at him to hurry up, or so it seemed. None of the other animals ever seemed to acknowledge his presence except for the bird, and he never saw the horse with seawater in its mane. Until tonight. There it was, galloping up and down in front of him, pawing the ground impatiently and snorting at him. Paul wanted to open his eyes and go and wake Dad up straight away. Dad, I've seen the horse. But he kept his eyes shut for fear that the apparition would vanish. In earlier days he'd prayed not to see the horse. But in the intervening years, fear had given way to curiosity and then a strange longing, not to ride it, whatever it was, but at least to look it in the eye. He never spoke to Dad about this because he suspected that he'd be laughed at and that his dad had just invented it as a game that wasn't to be taken seriously, especially by a 17-year-old. Although he tried to imagine what the horse might look like, this creature was something beyond what he could consciously create in his mind. Its size and wild energy had all the brooding threat of a thundercloud. There was no doubt that the dreadlocks of its mane were baptised in seawater like waterlogged rope encrusted with salt and sand. Its grey flanks encompassed the swell of the ocean and its white feet fretted like foam on dark rocks. Backing and pouncing unpredictably, the horse churned up the ground in front of him until it looked like the choppy sea from which it must have come. And every time it came close to Paul it stopped for a moment and looked at him with grey eyes that seemed to plead with him to climb onto its back. Paul wondered for a moment if he would be able to follow the horse instead of riding it but it seemed as if it wasn't going to go anywhere without him on its back. There was a time just three years ago when Paul would have gladly climbed up and let the beast carry him away for good. 
After mum had left, it was as if dad had been filled to the top with agony and then corked up so that it couldn't go anywhere. And Paul found himself hitting things deliberately with his fists so he hurt himself and finding other ways to cause himself small amounts of pain. He didn't really know why. Yes, back then he would have ridden the horse for the hell of it. He hadn't really cared what would happen to him back then. But tonight, he didn't feel compelled. The sound of the storm outside, which seemed to be hurling itself at the very rigging of the earth, seemed to be the elemental source of which this horse was just a shadow. As he stood before those cliffs with the horse champing and snorting before him, Paul felt himself being drawn into the fabric of the vision, as if those hooves were pounding inside his own stomach, as if the pulsing flanks of the beast were the walls of his own beating heart, and the two cliffs standing silently behind were the lids of his own eyes. In his mouth he tasted salt and dust, and there was a rushing sound in his own head that was almost unbearable, and the sound of his own thoughts seemed to be drowning. Some tiny part of him, that seemed to have kept himself apart from all this, presented him with choices. To open his eyes and awaken, or to mount the horse. Anything but to be stuck here in this unbearable thunder. As if through clouds of whirling chaos he glimpsed the cleft between the cliffs, dark and narrow, but open to the sky and perhaps offering some sort of shelter. As the horse turned in front of him for the hundredth time, he saw an opportunity and ran for the cliffs, leading with his forehead and dashing between his own eyelids and into the darkness. Immediately, the noise abated, and he felt a cool, still air on his skin. He could see the passage rapidly darkening ahead of him, and looking behind him, he saw that he had come several yards into the cleft, and beyond the entrance the horse was reared up on its back legs and braying, but none of the sound of it reached him. He started to pick his way back down into the darkness, afraid that the horse might follow him, but found with every step that the peace of the place deepened. He felt his heart and his breathing returning to normal, and as his eyes grew used to the dark he noticed a tiny rivulet running along the floor, and the natural passageway that he was standing in was softly illuminated by light from the sky bouncing down the walls which were mottled with moss and hung with trailing lichen. Buoyant with relief, and propelled by curiosity, he walked deeper into the cleft between the cliffs. It was not as narrow as it had seemed at first. In fact, it would have been broad enough for three to walk abreast. As he went on, he noticed tiny but tenacious plants clinging to the walls, reaching upwards with their heads and trailing roots down into the rivulet. This deep gully was full of life that thrived in the shade. After another hundred yards or so, there was a narrowing at the top that met in a roof to form a high cave. But he walked on, because there seemed to be light up ahead. Whenever he paused, he could hear the faintest burble of the water by his feet, underlain with a profound silence. The passage bent to the left, and then suddenly opened out into light again, and what he saw before him stopped him in mid-breath. He found himself emerging onto the floor of a gigantic sinkhole. The blue sky above was bound by the perfect round frame of the walls, and a thousand different shades of green surrounded him from the trees and vines of a sunken oasis.
In the midst of the light that fell from above there was a man standing and looking at him. His hair was white, but his face was youthful, and a white garment cascaded from his shoulders to his feet in braids like poured milk. He spoke, and his voice came across like the whisper and clatter of a waterfall. Paul. Paul's mouth was too paralysed to reply, but he let his breath out slowly, fearful of somehow breaking the spell of the place. Paul. I always see you, but it is good that you see me, said the man. And your father did well to warn you about the horse. It drowns every rider who chances it. Paul found the strength to whisper, Who are you? It is better that that is not answered in this place, except to say that I am one who is waiting to be seen by your father. You know my father? Yes, but you must tell him that I am still waiting for him. Come closer. Don't be afraid. Paul stepped forward, close enough to see the detail on the man's clothing, which appeared to be densely embroidered with threads of white gold depicting hundreds of tiny symbols, animals and plants and planets and geometrical shapes from a book of alchemy. Everything is here, the man said, brushing a bronze hand over the folds. And then lifting a corner of the hem, he showed Paul a tiny tear in the fabric. You must ask your father about this, he said. Paul squinted hard at the ragged gash in the otherwise perfect hem for a strong wind had begun to blow from above them and the material was beginning to blow like a collapsed sail. The rushing sound of the wind intensified and the sky darkened and Paul was aware of the storm tabering on the roof of his room as he fell upwards out of that place back into wakefulness on his bed. For a few moments he lay in the dark, then he reached for the lamp by his bed and banished it with a flick of a switch. Completely awake now, he pulled himself upright, swung his legs off the bed and stood up, and opened the door of his room and peered out onto the landing. It was quiet, but there was a light on downstairs. In the stairwell, the sound of the storm was distant as he padded down into the hallway. The door of the study was open, and Dad was sitting in a chair under a standard lamp, looking into the fireplace where the remains of a few black logs were glowing feebly like a tiny ruined city. Dad looked up gloomily as Paul entered and said nothing. Paul quietly put another log on the fire, blew it back into flame and squatted by the hearth. Are you okay, Dad? I can't sleep, said his father. It's too noisy. A strong gust rushed at the window trying to get in and the fire flared up throwing the heavy lines of his father's face into relief. I suspect there'll be a few trees down in the morning, said Paul. Yes, Dad brightened a little. It's nature's dentist, you know, the wind. They fell back into silence and Paul rested back on his heels. Dad, I saw the horse you warned me about. Dad narrowed his eyes and chuckled. Did you want to ride him? he asked. And suddenly Paul felt that he was back with his father who told him bedtime stories and played imaginary games with him in the good years before Mum had left. Not really. I went down between the cliffs instead. Really? Dad laughed or rather gave an amused snort. 
What was down there? Dad, it's not a game, is it? I mean, the horse and all that. Oh, my boy, I don't know if it is or not, said Dad wearily. Why don't you tell me about it anyway, just to pass the time? Paul told him everything, and Dad listened quietly, following the narrative with the lines on his forehead and the occasional nod and twitch of the eyebrows. As Paul concluded, Dad stood up and put another log on the fire, looking for a long time into the flames. Then he reached up to a wooden box on the mantelpiece and handed it down to his son, who was now sitting cross-legged on the edge of the hearth. Paul set the box in his lap and opened it. Inside was a torn shred of white cloth, no bigger than an elastoplast. He took it out and held it up in the firelight as Dad sat back down and began to speak. When I was courting your mother, 25 years ago, as a postgraduate in archaeology, I saw something I will never forget in a storm just like this. I'd spent the day at a dig in the Vale of Uffington. Late in the afternoon, the sky got black and angry and the wind got up. We'd been excavating an incredibly fruitful hoard of Bronze Age paraphernalia and nobody wanted to stop, as every few minutes turned up another find. I was in a trench when it started to rain and I remember how the pelting of the raindrops did the work of a brush, blasting away the soil to reveal the tantalising shapes of arrowheads, brooches, pot shards, sword hilts, you name it. It was as if the rain was doing our work for us, but the trenches were also filling with water and we had to pack it in. As I drove back to my flat, the gusts of wind were frightening, and the rain that squalled across my windscreen was too much for the wipers at times. I was crawling along the country lanes, wanting nothing more than the warm bath and a brandy. I reached the top of a hill, and there were some big branches in the road in front of me that I couldn't pass. I got out of the car to move them, leaving the engine running. Boy, but that wind was wild. Below me, the valley was filled with solid sheets of rain as if some huge cosmic giant had strung out their washing and it was whipping and flapping in the wind. Paul's father paused here and he picked up the poker and stoked the fire absently. Then he looked straight at his son. That's when I saw him. But I cannot describe how huge he was. The hem of his robe towered over the trees, and his arms were somewhere far above me, and he was spinning as if in a dance, and the sky was literally filled with speeding white cloth churning like clouds. I tell you that big things, huge things like whales and icebergs, can make a man cry for no apparent reason, but their size and how tiny they make him feel. The majesty of this being that I saw was like every power of nature rolled into one. I wept freely with the rain and shouted with the wind. I was one with it. I was beyond myself. I just don't have the words. If I kept my feet on that hill or if I was caught up into the sky, I couldn't tell you. But this I saw as clear as lightning. As those skirts swept over the fields... It seemed as if the soil was being pulled up into their vortex and caught in the folds of white. But not so much the soil as all the treasures within it. I saw bronze and gold weaponry, coins, jewellery, amulets, crowns being sucked from the very ground, from every age in history and every people that had lived on the land. 
I suppose there's only so much any human can live through. I mean, we must have a finite capacity for both pain and pleasure and whatever chord of emotion I was sounding on that hillside. Whatever it was, double-stopping my soul and body, it eventually abated. The figure moved on. Either up into the clouds or further along the valley, I lost sight of it, but the hem of the robe had passed right along the other side of the nearest hedgerow, like an express train. I suddenly noticed I was uncomfortably sodden, my clothes were wetly inhibiting my movements, and I've never had such a strong sense of being a creature of clay or so regretted the state of being earthbound. How did I feel? I didn't know. I was numb, to be honest. I thought and felt nothing as I mechanically pushed the branches off the road and walked back to the car. Various inhibitions were reasserting themselves and telling me that I'd just made a fool of myself by shouting at a storm. But even those I threw into the basket at the back of my mind for processing later. As I opened the car door, something caught my eye in the hedgerow, and it was that, caught on a blackthorn. I took it and laid it on the dashboard to dry as I drove home. I would doubt and dismiss everything I had seen if it wasn't for that shred of cloth that you have there. And you've kept it ever since? Yes. Did Mum know about it? Paul's father shook his head. Not the whole story. I told her that it was a memento of a profound moment in my life and she accepted that and never probed any further. I really loved your mother, Paul, and I still do. God knows I love her with my whole heart, but it seems there isn't much of my heart left to love her with. What do you mean? Ever since that day, I've been cursed with a divided soul, Paul. Dad, is this just another convoluted way of explaining to yourself why Mum left without admitting that you drove her away, said Paul, quite surprised at the force with which he spoke. I absolutely drove her away, Paul. I was able to get on with life to a certain extent. We were married just a few months after what I just told you about, but oh! And he hit the arm of his chair with the flat of his palm and he curled it into a fist. There was always something just beyond my reach that I knew I needed. And I don't know what it was, but it was something that would make sense of everything at once. A unified theory. That's why I stayed in academia, not looking for answers, but looking for one big answer. As I sifted through boxes of artefacts and wrote papers and drew maps and dug my way round the world, hoping that the off-scourings of ancient civilizations would show me who it was, dancing over the wield and harvesting the fruit of the ages into the folds of his robe that wet afternoon. I don't blame your mother that she couldn't bear it. I was never there, even when I was there. He went quiet. The fire popped. I don't understand, said Paul. He said he was waiting to see you again, and it sounds to me like it was him you were really looking for, so... I never saw his face like you did, Paul. And I don't even think I ever really thought of him having a face. It was that piece of cloth that had me. I wanted an answer and I wanted a grand theory, and I've wasted my life chasing a phantom. 
tenderness towards his father suddenly clothed the anger that Paul was feeling. At 17 years old, he hated to hear anyone talk about wasted life. It made him furious and frightened, and he found melodrama just as exhausting. He also knew exactly what needed to be done. He unceremoniously flicked the fragment of cloth into the fire, where it flared up, curled, and disintegrated to ash in a few seconds. Dad watched it with a blank expression. Paul put down the urge to explain himself. The act was clear enough in itself. I never looked for his face, Dad murmured. Come on, let's have a drink, Dad. We'll toast to a new era. Paul's father leant out of his chair, took his hand and gave it a squeeze. Why not, he said. There's an open bottle of red by the sink. When Paul returned from the kitchen with two glasses of wine, Dad looked up and said, That was going to be my death shroud, but I've outlived it. It was your bandage, but you don't need it, said Paul. It was my blindfold, but now I've seen it, said Dad. He was properly back. They hadn't played a game like this for ages. It was a ghost and you fleed it, said Paul, and they laughed together. Paul put the wine glass in his dad's hand and he went quiet again and looked at it. You know, we used to have five of these glasses. Someone gave me five of them once. A very odd number. There's only two in the cupboard, said Paul. I know, the others got broken one by one over the years and I can't remember how. Well, there's still one for you and one for another, Paul quipped. Exactly, said Dad. Let's have a toast. What shall we toast? Paul held his glass aloft. To nature's dentist, he said. To nature's dentist, his father echoed, and they drank. Outside, nature's dentist was ending its surgery, and inside the fire fell in upon itself slowly and died to a glimmer. A pleasant drowsiness descended upon Paul's father and he looked from one half-full wine glass to the other, one on the arm of the chair and the other on the hearth by his son. And as his eyes closed, they became two red cliffs in front of him, with a cleft between them. The soundtrack for this week's story was from the album The Glass Desert by Harlan Williams, available from magnatune.com. Many thanks to Magnatune artists and to my sound engineer, Tim Wiles, and to you, of course, for listening. I'll be back soon with another story, and in the meantime, you can visit bordersofsleep.com or subscribe with iTunes for more. <laughs>